0: Uh, this is by uh, David Bakavoy who has a PhD in Hebrew Bible and Ancient Near East from Brandeis University. That's one of the top uh, biblical and Jewish studies universities in the country and they almost never let Gentiles in there, But uh, so David has been made an honorary Jew in order to uh, attend that university. He's the former LDS chaplain at Harvard University which is pretty cool because I understand nobody at Harvard believes in God which <laughs> means his job is kind of superfluous. He, he is uh, has taught for many years with the CES Seminary and Institute program, and he is a fantastic teacher. He was a student of mine way back in the day, which is depressing because it means I'm old. But uh, he's also an up-and-coming uh, LDS scholar who's published in some of the leading biblical studies journals, and as well as LDS journals. So he, he will be talking on, I think he stole my topic, which is... Holiness to the Lord, Biblical Imagery in the Sermons of Jacob the Priest, and that is my topic too. So whatever good stuff he says is probably stolen from me. (laughs) Bill
1: has no idea how true that absolutely is. He actually sent me a PDF about a year ago of his paper, and so if there's something that sounds familiar, it's it's his. I am grateful for Bill and for David and for all that they've done to put together this wonderful conference. It's been great to attend and, uh, and participate in and to learn from the presentations that have been shared. Grateful for a chance to dedicate this paper to my friend Matt Brown. Um, I have about 14 pages to get through, so I'm going to move quickly. But this will be the most exciting presentation of the day, I promise. Despite the deep spiritual significance for Latter-day Saints, the Book of Mormon contains very few explicit references to temple worship. Towards the beginning of Nephi's record, the Book of Mormon prophet informs his readers that he built a temple for his community, quote, after the manner of the Temple of Solomon, 2 Nephi 5.16, Years later, the righteous King Benjamin gathered together his people at the temple to hear the words of his highly influential sermon. Similarly, when the resurrected Christ visited the Nephites, the Book of Mormon makes note that the long-awaited theophany occurred specifically at the temple precinct in Bountiful. Hence, notwithstanding a scarcity of explicated ritual detail, clearly the temple itself fulfilled a decisive role in Nephite religious conceptions. Since the Book of Mormon presents the Nephites as a forgotten familial branch of ancient Israel, the profound religious role that the temple appears to have held in Nephite society really comes as no surprise. For both biblical as well as ancient Israel, the temple served as the very focal point of religious devotion. In its most basic fundamental sense, the temple provided a literal dwelling place for deity. Temple precinct was therefore considered holy, an entry into Israelite temple space not only imbued the worshiper with the degree of that holiness, but also conceptually placed the individual in the presence of deity. Even though its depiction of actualized temple rituals is admittedly somewhat slight, when Book of Mormon prophetic discourse is read through the lens of ancient temple worship, Many of these sermons can be shown to reflect imagery and ritual performances directly associated with biblical conceptions. This observation proves especially true in the teachings of the Book of Mormon prophet Jacob. Thus, through an analysis of two of Jacob's sermons, 2 Nephi 9 and Jacob 1 through, through verse 12, The following study illustrates the manner in which Book of Mormon prophetic discourse can be shown to draw upon a variety of ancient temple themes. As the second Nephite scribal voice, Jacob, the brother of Nephi, fulfills a central role as priestly author in what the Book of Mormon itself identifies as the more spiritually focused writings of the small plates. Nephi specifically refers to Jacob as a consecrated priest over the land of Nephi's people, 2 Nephi 5, verse 26. According to his own writings, Jacob's priestly responsibilities dictated that he take upon his head the sins of the people if he failed to teach them the word of God. It's Jacob 1, verse 18. Reading Jacob's description of his obligation in connection with biblical temple ritual, Creates a type of reversal in Jacob's statement from the traditional role fulfilled by an Israelite high priest. According to Exodus 28, verse 38, when officiating in temple worship, the high priest would wear the sacred priestly cap or mitre inscribed with the Hebrew phrase Kodesh la Adonai, or holiness to Yahweh slash the Lord. Signifying that as a priest he was able to effectively expiate or absorb sin Holiness to the Lord shall be upon Aaron's forehead. We read in Exodus twenty-eight thirty-eight that Aaron may bear the iniquity of the holy things Which the children of Israel shall hallow in all their holy gifts and it shall be oh, Always upon his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord this biblical text Indicates that part of the priestly duty consisted in removing sin and wearing the cap upon his head. The biblical high priest was able, therefore, to win acceptance for Israel before the Lord. In a related notion, Leviticus 10, 17 indicates that biblical priests carried the responsibility to, quote, bear the iniquity of the congregation and to make atonement for them before the Lord. This biblical conception of priestly responsibility to absorb sin therefore parallels Jacob's description of his own assignment. And we did magnify our office unto the Lord, taking upon us the responsibility, answering the sins of the people upon our own heads, if we, note the head imagery, did not teach them the word of God with all diligence, wherefore by laboring with our might, their blood might not come upon our garments. Otherwise, their blood would come upon our garments, and we would not be found spotless at the last day. When read through the lens of ancient Israelite temple worship, Jacob's comments bring to mind the thought of the biblical priest, whose robes were no doubt stained with the blood that had effectively absorbed the iniquity of his people during sacrificial slaughter. Yet Jacob's role was also that of teacher, and like the biblical priest who could bear iniquities of the congregation, as symbolized through the sacred phrase inscribed upon the mitre or cap worn directly upon his own head, Jacob recognized that he would take the sins of the people upon his own head if he failed to fulfill his consecrated commission. According to the Book of Mormon, in serving as a priest, Jacob would have performed Mosaic temple ordinances in the Nephite temple constructed by his brother as a parallel to Solomon's holy shrine. Alma 25.15 states that the Nephites participated in the outward performances of the Law of Moses. In terms of biblical tradition, some of these outward performances appear directly linked with temple worship and ritual. It is perhaps, therefore, significant, and I think it is absolutely wonderful, I'll add, that the same literary unit in the Book of Mormon that describes Nephi building a temple also identifies Nephi consecrating Jacob to serve as priest. That's 2 Nephi five, sixteen, and 26. In his own writings, Jacob identifies himself as a priest who taught his people the word of God in the temple. Wherefore I, Jacob, gave unto them these words as I taught them in the temple, we read. Significantly, Jacob's priestly sermons, including the one he delivers specifically at the temple, suggest a profound familiarity on the part of the author with the rituals and conceptions connected with ancient Israelite temple worship. Jacob goes so far as to specifically identify his sermon in Jacob 2 through 3, verse 12, as a temple discourse in his opening remarks. Now, my beloved brethren, we read, I, Jacob, according to the responsibility which I am under to God, to magnify mine office with soberness, and that I might rid my garments of your sin, I come up into the temple this day. Jacob 2, verse 2. With this introduction, Jacob, the priest, identifies the temple as the Zitzenleben, Laban, or setting in life for his teachings. References to the temple as the zitz and laban for Jacob's sermon appear both in the narrative introduction to the speech that was Jacob 1, remember, and directly in Jacob's opening remarks. Through this repetition and therefore emphasis, the author clearly sets up Jacob 2 through 3 verse 12 as a priestly sermon to be interpreted in the context of temple ideology. In the narrative introduction to his discourse, Jacob informs his readers that both he and his fellow priesthood holders labored diligently to convince their people to, quote, come unto Christ and partake of the goodness of God, that they might enter into his rest. That's verse 7. Jacob's language presents a literary allusion to Psalm 95, verse 11, and this is really, really cool. Okay. Jacob's language presents a literal allusion to Psalm 95 11, a text where concerning the wilderness generation of Israel, Yahweh declared, "I swore in my wrath that they should not enter my rest. That's verse 11. The Hebrew word translated the King James version as rest means more precisely resting place and refers contextually to the promised land where from a biblical perspective, the presence of Yahweh literally resided. In the context of Jacob's temple sermon, Jacob's allusion to Psalm 95 more closely parallels the text Christological reinterpretation in Hebrews 3 through 4, where the place of rest referred to in Psalm 95 denotes God's holy presence as signified by his throne. When read as a thematic introduction to his temple sermon, Jacob's use of Psalm 95 and the notion of entering into God's rest matches one of the paramount conceptions associated with ancient temple worship, that of physically entering the presence of divinity. Within the Bible, this motif appears reflected through the biblical expression, lifne Adonai, before the Lord, slash Yahweh. In Hebrew, the prepositional phrase, lifne, which means literally, to the face of, or at the front of, carries the same semantic nuance in the presence of, or as rendered in the King James Bible English, simply before. And studies have shown that any ritual activity in which a biblical author uses the formula before the Lord can be inter- can be considered an indication of either a temple experience or sight, since as Moshe Haran in- illustrated, quote, this expression stems from the basic conception of the temple as a divine dwelling place and actually belongs to the temple's terminology." End of quote. Hence, as an introduction to his speech, Jacob's statement regarding the process of entering into the Lord's rest serves as an important thematic segue to his temple sermon, as does his allusion to the provocation of God in the days of temptation while the children of Israel were in the wilderness. Jacob's statement in 1, verse 7, draws upon Psalm 95, 8, an ancient temple-related text that encourages Israel to, quote, harden not your heart in the day of provocation, as in the day of temptation of the wilderness, and of quote, see, it's the same, same language. In his highly influential work on form criticism in the Psalms, Herman Gunkel identified Psalm 95 as a temple hymn. On sacred occasions in the Hebrew Bible, connected with festivals, Israelites would come together to worship deity at the temple. In the words of Gunkel, the people would gather together at the temple, quote, in their best clothes and in the happiest mood, end of quote. I love that statement. Beautiful. Subsequent studies following Gunkel's lead have shown that temple hymns, including Psalm 95, could perhaps, would perhaps have been sung by ancient Israelites as they entered the house of the Lord. Summarizing these observations, Marvin Tate writes, quote, in verse 1, worshipers approaching the place of worship for some festival occasion encourage each other or are encouraged by a speaker, such as a priest, to move on, on to the sanctuary with shouting and singing isn't it wonderful let me interject and say that this is the text that Jacob draws upon as priest in his in his his biblical like temple sermon it's incredible to me a second call to move toward yahweh is given in verse 2 envisioning worshipers according to according to enter the uh, inner area of the sanctuary, perhaps into the inner court of the temple. And in the third exhortation, he goes on and summarizes what many scholars have observed in terms of this text that Jacob quotes. Now, the opening lines of the Old Testament temple hymn, Jacob quoted, describes the feelings temple worshipers should have when entering the Lord's presence, as Gunkel so beautifully addressed. O come, we read, let us sing unto the Lord, let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving and make a joyful noise unto him with psalms. After citing this hymn in his narrative introduction, Jacob, however, appears to specifically reverse the sentiment expressed in these lines, telling his people that even though he had come up into the temple, he felt the exact opposite emotion of joy and thanksgiving in the Lord's presence. In verse 6 we read, Yea, it grieveth my soul, and causeth me to shrink with shame before the presence of my Maker, that I must testify unto you concerning the wickedness of your hearts. When read in connection with Jacob's citation of Psalm 95, verse 8, this statement appears to present an intentional reversal of the hymn's opening lines. Well, in addition to the reference of appearing before God's presence, Jacob's allusion to wicked hearts parallels the imagery in Psalm 95, verse 8, where the hymn instructs temple worshipers to specifically harden not your heart on this sacred occasion. Jacob was also clearly touched by the metaphor rock of our salvation that appears in Psalm 95, verse 1, for he adopted this very metaphor in two of his Book of Mormon sermons, 2 Nephi 9, verse 45, and Jacob 7, Verse 25, now other literary allusions to ancient temple worship appear throughout Jacob's sermon, including his subsequent reference to prayer. And in the interest of time, I will skip that to jump to what I think is perhaps even more interesting and significant. Because if you'll recall, my thesis is to illustrate that temple imagery may be drawn out from the prophetic sermons in the Book of Mormon, and I use two of Jacob's priestly discourses to illustrate this. This, by the way, is very much a, a follow-up to the approach that I took to analyzing the story of Jacob and Esau and the blessing ritual in the first volume of studies in the Bible in antiquity. I refer to it as ritual in narrative, and I see this as somewhat of a follow-up where we are looking for and drawing out ritual in prophetic sermon, specifically in the Book of Mormon. Now. We'll move to 2 Nephi 9, for time's sake. Throughout his um, atonement sermon, discourse, Jacob goes so far as to adopt the term holy as a biblical-like leitwort, or theme word, intentionally repeated for both didactic as well as poetic purposes. Examples of this repetition over and over again, I would add, to the concept of holy include the mouth of his holy prophets, the Holy One of Israel, the holy judgments of God, the saints, which is, of course, holy ones, of the Holy One of Israel, the holiness of our God. Holy, holy are they judgments. If ye were holy, I would speak unto you of holiness, but ye are not holy, which I think is so ironic, right? Mr. so many references to holy. The holy name of my God, and on and on and on. It's his obsession from a literary perspective, the focus of this priestly sermon, As suggested through this repetition, the notion of holiness appears as a central theme throughout Jacob's address. Anciently, temple priests such as Jacob dealt regularly with the concept of holiness in terms of their ritual performances. In the Hebrew Bible, holiness refers to a state of being in places, objects, persons, and time that corresponds with the presence of God. That's why, of course, the temple is holy. From a biblical perspective, only deity himself was considered intrinsically holy. Therefore, the closer an individual or even an object gets to God's physical presence in the temple, the more holy he or it becomes. As a divine attribute, God wanted to share his holiness with his covenant people. Ye shall therefore be holy, for I am holy, he commanded in Leviticus 11 verse 45. Since the temple served as God's house, it appears inseparably linked with the quality of holiness in biblical views. For example, I will come into thy house in the multitude of thy mercy, declared the psalmist, and in thy fear will I worship toward thy holy temple. Psalm 5, verse 7. Many of the sacrificial rituals performed under the law of Moses served as sacred acts designed to retain the temple's quality of holiness. This effort was based upon the notion that Israel needed to keep separate the holy from the unholy and the clean from the unclean, especially in terms of temple worship. Jacob Milgram has shown that as the opposite of holiness, impurity could attack areas or people made holy by the sanctifying presence of deity, including the temple. In priestly temple-based rituals, impurity was removed by means of sacrificial blood, which functioned as a type of ritual detergent, effectively absorbing impurity from the temple and its sacred vessels. We see this, for example, in Leviticus 16, 15 through 16. According to this system, sacrificial blood was holy and could, therefore, absorb impurity, the opposite of holiness, and restore the temple to its pristine holy condition, imparted by its connection with the presence of God. In the biblical priestly system, human beings could transmit impurity, contaminating other individuals and or objects, and thus destroy the state of holiness in the temple. In this sense, humans could spread impurity in one of three ways, as a leper, a corpse, or by means of sexual emissions. The ancient priestly view of bodily impurifications may at first seem arbitrary in nature. The Impurities focus on four phenomena, death, semen, skin disease, or leprosy, and blood. However, as Milgram has explained, their common denominator is, in fact, death. And I'll just tell you that that is a very interesting observation. And to summarize the point, then, that is made in Milgram's studies, holiness is, well, impurity is death. Holiness is life. Therefore, since blood is the life source, of course it has the power to absorb impurity or death. Okay, and now finally then we end, and with all of this in mind, we return then to Jacob's sermon where he is emphasizing holiness, holiness over and over again, and and then he states these sorts of things. Jacob testified of the power of the Holy One of Israel to overcome death, stating that this atonement will transpire as assuredly as the Lord liveth. Think of it in holiness, priestly conceptions. Moreover, Jacob's praise directed towards the Holy One of Israel in the course of his speech, specifically includes the statement, O the greatness of the mercy of our God, the Holy One of Israel, for he delivered his saints, his holy ones, from death and hell. And finally, as priest, Jacob warned his people against transgressing against their holy God, encouraging them to remember that to be, quote, carnally minded is death, and to be spiritually minded is life eternal. This is amazing that this happens in the the book of Mormon, this very profound view of priestly conceptions. And yet we see these sorts of things over and over again. And that is about all I have time to explore with you. So I leave you with my thoughts of how wonderful it is to read the Book of Mormon from this vantage point, from the view of ancient temple imagery and motif that we see in the Bible, and to draw that out and to see it in the sermons is a very exciting journey and one that I suspect my friend Matthew Brown would enjoy witnessing and participating with me. Thank you.